Hallelujah, it's great to see such a crowd here. Um, why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer, and then I'll give a, a little more of an introduction, and then we'll begin our reflection for tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the season of Lent, for the chance to gather as parish family, to reflect on the gift of the Eucharist, the call to discipleship and following your Son, fill us all with your Spirit, so that we may have a renewed sense of penance as we press forward to celebrate the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So it really is great to see so many people here. Particularly, I want to welcome anybody here, parents, young people, the Family Faith Formation Program. Um, also see a few familiar faces here, which is really great to see. I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight, and of course, Father Cooper for inviting me to be your Linton mission speaker. As was said before, my name is Father Bryce Sibley. I'm a priest, actually, of the Diocese of Lafayette. been ordained about 24 years, and I am currently serving as professor of moral theology over at Notre Dame Seminary, so I'm making the trek across the lake each day to come be with you. And so Father asked me to preach this mission. I've preached a lot of retreats, missions over the years, and always loved doing it, getting to meet new people, getting to take some time to pray and reflect, and I, I really appreciate it when the pastor tells me what to preach on. And it just so happened that what I had been praying about and reflecting on was exactly what Father had mentioned, talking about discipleship and the Eucharist, and particularly to use one of my favorite scripture passage is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, the road to Emmaus that happens on Easter Sunday. We're going to be looking at this call to discipleship through the road to Emmaus. So I really want to encourage you when you go home, maybe before you come to each night's talk, to spend some time reflecting on it. And I had begun preparing this from the lens of discipleship. Because here is Jesus. He's walking with these disciples, speaking to them, opening scripture to them leading them, of course, as we know, to the breaking of the bread. And I had come up with this whole entire thing, but then when I really began to pray with it, I realized that the passage is about something else. So I hate to undercut what Father asked me to do. I'm going to talk about discipleship and the Eucharist, but the passage is about something else. And I'm going to do my best, particularly today, explain why that is. And we're going to talk about the Eucharist. We're really going to have to wait, though, to get to the end before we see how it all comes together. So each of these three nights are not separate talks. They are, I guess, but they are all together. We're going to be following Jesus and the disciples on that road to Emmaus. So if you end tonight, you're going to end with a cliffhanger. If you end tomorrow night, you're going to end with a cliffhanger until we get to the very end. What is this passage about? I'm going to tell you right away. It is not so much about discipleship, although that is part of it. It's about Jesus encountering two disciples who've left Jerusalem. Not walking with them to Jerusalem, but who've left. 
These are people who have given up on being disciples, who are disappointed, frustrated. They don't understand, and Jesus intercepts them. The way that I came to understand this actually was about 10 years ago, right at the beginning of his pontificate. Pope Francis, in 2013, when he was at World Youth Day, spoke to a group of bishops, and he gave this what we call exegesis or explanation of this passage, and it blew me away because I had never heard it interpreted that way. And so what I want to do is use over the course of the time together some insights from the Holy Father to help us better understand what this passage is about, because it's really Yes, of course, about how we need scripture and the Eucharist to follow Jesus, but it's about how we disciple our friends and family who have left the church. And I'm pretty sure, if I ask you to raise your hands, everyone in here knows someone who's left the practice of the faith, who's left the church, and wants to bring them back. It's not y'all. Y'all are here. We can, of course, grow to be better disciples, but how can we learn to reach out to others who've left the church? And it teaches us a lot about the Eucharist, a lot about Lent, and a lot about discipleship. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the passage. And each night I'm going to break down this rather lengthy passage uh, into three parts. And we're going to read a little bit each night. And then we're going to spend some time reflecting on what each part means. So we'll begin at the beginning. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 24. This is sort of the afternoon of the resurrection. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so Luke tells us, the very day, or that very day, two of them, the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still, looking sad, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So that's the beginning, as the disciples explained to Jesus why they were leaving Jerusalem, why they were sad. And this is what we see. We're going to begin by looking at these two disciples. And they are leaving Jerusalem. 
So right off the bat, we're going to understand this. We've got to understand the meaning and significance of Jerusalem, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. It plays a very, very important part. Jerusalem, of course, is David's city. It's the place of the temple of worship, the holy city, God's dwelling place. It's a place of belonging where Israel gathers, a symbol of the church. And so, as I said, in the Gospel of Luke, if you read it, all of the action is ordered towards Jerusalem. In the first two chapters alone, there are three separate journeys to Jerusalem that are described. But the real heart of the gospel, if you look at it, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 1947, all of this, the main action of the gospel, describes Jesus' ascent to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's on a hill. And so as he and the apostles ascend on the journey, on the way, to go up to Jerusalem. You know the famous passage, he set his face like flint. We're going to Jerusalem. Of course, to do what? To offer worship. To offer sacrifice. To give his life. Now, if you sort of study the, the background of scripture, in a lot of the different writings of the time, there was this motive of ascent, of a, a conqueror, a ruler, coming to take hold of the city. And so it's sort of described as this. Jesus is the conqueror. He is the king who is going up to Jerusalem. Everything goes there. But what do we have? We do not have the disciples going to Jerusalem. They're doing the opposite of everything that's happened over the course of the past ten chapters. They're hauling tail. They're getting out. They do not want to be there. And they're going to this place called Emmaus, about seven miles away. Now, scholars and archaeologists have not been able to find Emmaus. We don't know where it is. We don't know if it existed. It's a sort of no place. Regardless of where it is, it's not Jerusalem. That's where they should be staying. They shouldn't be leaving. And so in a real way, and these words are going to be coming, they are on an exodus. You know, like Moses and Israel leaving Egypt, the exodus. The word exodus, and this is going to become very important over the course of the next three nights, comes from the two Greek words ex, ex, which means out of, and hodos, H-O-D-O-S, which means a road or a way. The exodus is the ex-hodos, the way out, the road out. They are leaving Jerusalem, and they're actually going down, which will become important later on. Instead of ascending to Jerusalem, they are going down into the valley towards this place called Emmaus. They're leaving the presence of God. They're leaving Jesus. They're leaving the city walls. They're leaving the community. But unlike the exodus from Egypt... When, as we're going to see, they left Egypt to do what? To escape slavery, but actually to go into the desert to worship. It's the whole point. They're going to the desert to worship. Here, they are fleeing worship. They're fleeing the encounter with the risen Lord. They're leaving the church. 
They're leaving Christ's true presence. So right from the outset, we know that this is not good. This is not the model for discipleship. You stay in Jerusalem. It may be uncomfortable, but you don't leave. They're fleeing from following Christ. They're fleeing from his community. The question is, why are they leaving? What's the point? Well, it's quite obvious. It says they were sad. They stopped on their walk and they were sad after Jesus asked them what's going on. Why were they sad? Because ultimately things didn't turn out as planned. Or they didn't turn out as they expected or would hope. Now, I wonder, we we know the name of one of them, Cleopas. Remember Mary, the wife of Cleopas? She was there at the foot of the cross. So I'm sure she went home and told her husband everything that was going on. He knew all the details. And they had hoped that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. The the one who was the king who was going to be ascending to free Israel from the clutch of the Romans so that they could once again be free people. But they were scandalized that this didn't happen, that he failed. It all looked like a complete failure, scandalized from the Greek skandalon, which means a stumbling block. They thought, as a lot of the Jews at the time did, that the Messiah, the Savior, was going to come. And when he did, he was going to come kicking behind and taking names. Cutting off heads, slaying these Roman centurions. But instead of conquering, Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, was himself conquered. So all their expectations, all their hopes were shattered. Were disappointed. That line. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So Pope Francis sort of talks about this, and over the course of our time together, I'm going to give different quotes from Pope Francis. He's talked about this a number of different times. He said, let us imagine the scene. Two men are walking, disappointed, sad, convinced that they are leaving behind them the bitterness of an event which ended badly. Before that Easter... They had been full of enthusiasm, convinced that those days would be decisive. Their expectations met as well as the hopes of all the people. Jesus, to whom they had entrusted their lives, had seemed to arrive at the final battle. He would now manifest his power after a long period of preparation and concealment. This is what they were expecting. It was not meant to be. How many times have we been like that? We had these great expectations and it didn't turn out like we expected. And we were disappointed and we walked away sad. So how can we apply this, though? The the situation of them leaving the church and the reasons that they're leaving Jerusalem, and the reasons they're leaving to our situation today. When we find that Catholics leave the church who no longer want to be in Jerusalem, and to ask ourselves, why do they leave? Now, we all hear the statistics, and you can go and read in different sources. A number of studies have been done over the course of the past few years that half of all Catholics have left the church at some point of their lives, especially the young. 
They leave when they're young. Sometimes they may come back, particularly whenever they have kids and they want to baptize them. 10% of Americans are former Catholics. 40% of young people are what we call the nuns, who really don't claim any religious affiliation. So there are lots of young people, particularly with the young, who really do stop practicing. They say that 80% of college freshmen who are Catholics, by the time they leave, will no longer practice their faith. Some leave at an instant. Some leave as a gradual drift away from the church. I could give a lot more examples if we know the stats. Even in the church, only 20% of Catholics actually come to regular Sunday Mass. And we know why people have left. They go in search of something else. Many have joined evangelical churches. Better preaching over there. Quite often there is better preaching over there. (laughs) Not tonight. (laughs) Or they've cobbled together their own faith. This is what I want. This is what this means to me. It's important. Or they don't practice at all. But the truth is, y'all, many of them are your children, your grandchildren. And over the years, I have heard so many stories. Why? Because I'm a priest. But for 11 years, I worked as the chaplain and the priest at the Catholic Student Center over at UL in Lafayette. I've worked with thousands of young people. And I've seen why they leave, and I've seen why they stay. Now, it's not just young people, even though we're going to talk about that a bit tonight, because we have a lot of young people and parents here. We don't want the young people to leave the church. We need the church, them the church, all of the future of the church. We need a vibrant one. But it's not just young people. There are people leaving all the time. And Pope Francis says, it is a fact that nowadays there are many people like the two disciples of Emmaus. Not only those looking for answers and the new religious groups that are sprouting up, but also those who already seem godless, even in theory or in practice. Now here's the reality, and this sort of gets to what we were talking about. When they leave the church, they leave the Eucharist. They leave the body and blood of Jesus truly present, sacramentally under the appearances of bread and wine. We've been hearing all about this crisis of Eucharistic faith. Like I said, 20% of Catholics go to church. And they say 65 to 80% of Catholics don't truly believe in the true presence. And even if they do, a lot of them don't care. they got better things to do. And so it's not really a difficulty for them to leave. Or if they do struggle with that teaching, they're like the disciples in John chapter 6. Remember when Jesus gives the, the, the bread of life discourse. If you want to get to heaven, you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. And for some of his followers, they said, this is too hard. And they ended up leaving and they stopped following Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves, though, why do people today leave the church? We know they do. They go on the road to Emmaus. They are getting out of Jerusalem. And studies show that there are a number of reasons, and from my own experience, and I'm sure from your own experience, you know that there are a handful of reasons. Probably the biggest one is this. It has to do with the person themselves. 
They're just too busy. We live in a world where I don't think a lot of people say, I hate the church, I don't want to go. They just get caught up in so many things. Their families, stuff on the weekends, traveling, sports, shopping, all the stuff they can't do because they're so busy during the week. And they miss Mass one weekend, and God doesn't strike them dead. They don't get a plague of a locust at their house. And the next thing you know, they miss the next weekend. And then after a few months, they're not going to church at all. And just like when we quit working out, it's hard for us to get back into the gym. It's hard to get back into the church. So it's a gradual decline. But there are also a lot of people who really do not so much struggle with the church, but with their faith. They feel that God has abandoned them. Lots of suffering in their lives are those whom they live answering, asking prayers. Jesus, you said, knock and the door shall be open, but the door ain't open. And things just keep getting worse dealing with defeat, failure, struggle in their lives, and feeling that the good shepherd is not there. So they're disappointed. We've all encountered that, the struggle. Why, Lord, are you allowing this to happen? Feeling crushed by the weight of life, feeling that the Lord has abandoned us, like Christ on the cross, speaking those words, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The faith tends to slip away. Or, if you're just going to talk about faith in general, maybe they were very faithful when they were young. But the fact is, it was just because their parents brought them to Mass. They never took ownership of their faith. That's what I saw in college a lot. College students who came, if they decided to take ownership of their faith, oh, they still practice afterwards. But if not, if it was, I go to Mass because Mom wanted me to go to Mass, well, guess what? Mom ain't here, so I'm going to go to the bar. And the next thing you know, we're not going to Mass. That's how it works. There's freedom. But the reality is, I'm sure you know this, a lot of the problems are within the church themselves. People struggling with the church's teaching, particularly issues of sexuality, marriage, LGBT, particularly true for our younger generation. Boomers, Generation X. The millennials and the Generation Z do not see things as we do. It's a generational thing. It's there. We can think they're crazy and stupid, or we can listen to them and try to enter into dialogue by imitating Jesus. A lot of them feel they can't live up to the expectations, the moral life of the church, particularly a lot of people struggling from perfectionism. Look at this high call. There's no way I can live up to that. And so as a result, why even try? Pope Francis says there are also those who recognize the ideal of man and of life as proposed by the church, but they do not have the audacity to embrace it. They think that this ideal is too lofty for them, that it is beyond their abilities, and that the goal sets, the church sets, is unattainable. There's no way I can live this out. So I'm out of here. I'm going to go to Emmaus. Many of them hurt by a priest. Maybe the father was too harsh in them in confession. Maybe he wasn't present when the family needed him. Maybe he just didn't care for them when they were suffering. 
But as most of you know, probably the biggest thing over the course of the past 20 years that has led people to leave the church has been the abuse crisis, this terrible scandal. And the failure of leadership to protect the sheep from wolves in sheep's clothing. Abuse of sexuality, an abuse of power, one that the church is going to suffer from wounds for decades, if not centuries to come. So many people said, I can't be in a church like this. And they've left. We've all encountered some. And as a result, because of this and other things, many believe the church just isn't relevant today. We live in this technological society. We understand that there's evolution. We don't need all this hocus-pocus, these sacred rituals and rites. The church doesn't have anything to offer. It doesn't have a message that can compete with the secular message out there in the media. Pope Francis again. Perhaps the church appeared too weak, perhaps too distant from their needs, perhaps too poor to respond to their concerns, perhaps too cold, perhaps too caught up in itself, perhaps a prisoner of its own rigid formulas. Perhaps the world seems to have made the church a relic of the past, unfit for new questions. Perhaps the church could speak to people in their infancy, but not those who have come to age. Ah, I've got a PhD. I know that the Bible is not inspired by God, that a lot of it is not historical. I know that the popes are just infallible. There's no way that Jesus could be present in the Eucharist. But the final one is this, and it's one that I am going to come back to. And from my experience, this last one is the biggest one. All those others are big. But it's this last one, which most of us, I think, probably don't even recognize. A lot of people leave the church and head to Emmaus because they feel like they don't belong feel like they don't belong in the Catholic Church. It could be their own insecurities. Maybe they feel like they don't belong anywhere. Or it could be because we didn't make them feel welcome. It was because we didn't see them when they came in. Or maybe because as a parish, I'm not talking about your parish, I'm talking about the church in general, there was no sense of community. People came, they got their Jesus, and they took off, probably after communion. If you're coming in and you're seeing half the church empty out for communion, why would you want to come back if you've never been at the church before? But if you're at church and everybody's sitting around talking outside after mass for an hour, oh, these people like each other. I feel like I belong here. And I saw that on the college campus. We had a very, very vibrant ministry. And the students would come and hopefully they'd be feel welcomed, brought into a Bible study, come hang out in the cafe. And once they felt welcomed, once they felt like they belonged, they stayed. It's that sense of belonging. And truly, many people have false expectations of who God is, what the faith is, or who the church or what the church should be. So they're going to leave disappointed no matter what happens, just like the disciples we hear today. And it's easy to condemn and say, why why do they leave the church? They're not good Catholics. Or to question them or to criticize them. How could you give up Christ? How can you give up his, his bride, the church? How can you give up Christ's true presence for the Eucharist to go to some 
skating rink church and sip lattes and listen to praise and worship music for an hour and a half. I don't know, but they're doing it. And we're sitting around complaining that they're doing it. What are we doing to get them to come back and get back from the road to Emmaus? And that's the question. If we're so focused on the Eucharist and on discipleship and the gift of the church, how do we bring people on the road to Emmaus who are leaving Jerusalem back? And so what are we going to do? We're going to look to the gospel and see what Jesus does. And that's what we're going to play out over the course of the next three nights. Follow the example of the master. What does he do to disciple these men who have left and their disappointment and their sadness and their sorrow? How does he lead them back to Jerusalem? And the word is so clear. I just love this phrase, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later on. Luke tells us that Jesus draws near to them. Jesus draws near to them, and he begins to walk with them on the way. So he's going out to the lost sheep. He's the good shepherd. He encounters them along their way. He intercepts them. He knows where they are. Jesus knows where the lost sheep are, and he goes to meet them. But they didn't recognize him. Very important point. Just like Mary Magdalene, when she goes out there, she thinks Jesus is the gardener. And Jesus, in his resurrected body, it seems, had the ability to control how he appeared to others or how other people perceived him. But he goes and he draws near to them, and what does he do? He meets them where they're at. He doesn't, you know, send a cloud to them and say, bro, what are y'all doing? Come back to Jerusalem and come talk to me. He doesn't say, I'm sitting here in the temple. You come to me. No, 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 no. He goes out to them. He meets them on their way. And what's the first thing he does? He doesn't say, you dummies, what are you doing? Why are you giving up the Eucharist? Instead, he asks them questions. What are y'all talking about? What are y'all chatting about? He knows what they're chatting about. He's the son of God. But he's opening up the dialogue. He's allowing them to speak their minds and speak their hearts. And he lets them tell their entire story. Going on and on and on about their expectations, their frustration, their disappointment. And what does he do? He listens and he lets them finish. He doesn't interrupt and say, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You shouldn't have expected me to come in there and kill everybody. That's not what happened. He let him finish. And he listened to them. He listened to their story. And the reality is, Jesus is willing to do the same thing for us or anyone else who strays. He does go out to meet people. The problem is, is we don't recognize him. Just like they didn't hear. Christ can come to us in so many different ways. He's not going to appear in his glorified body. He didn't do it back then. He's not going to do it now. 
He's going to appear to us, but unfortunately, we don't recognize him. We're expecting something different. I don't have a lot of jokes that I tell. I'm funny, but I don't have a lot of jokes that I tell. Most of them because they're not appropriate for church, or they're slightly off-color. The one that I tell, the most important one, and if you've heard me preach the mission before, you've heard me talk about it, is the, is the guy, the flood is coming. And he says, Jesus, save me for the flood. And about five minutes later, a car drives by and says, dude, come on, the flood's coming, let's go. No, Jesus isn't going to save me. I'm waiting here. Waters rise up a little bit more. A boat comes. Hey, buddy, the, the, flood, the flood's rising. The, the levee broke. Come on. No, 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 Jesus is going to save me. I trust him. I have, have power in the Lord. Finally, he's on his roof, and a helicopter comes and drops down one of those rope ladders. Come on. You're going to drown. No, Jesus is going to save me. Ten minutes later, he's at the pearly gates. <laughs> he meets Jesus. He says, Jesus, dude. I prayed for you to save me. You, 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 dropped, you dropped the ball. You let me die. You didn't come. And he goes, what are you talking about? I sent a car, a boat, and a helicopter. But that's the point. We expect Jesus to act. and just come in at deus ex machina and, and, and rescue us. No. He comes and we often don't recognize him. But the reality is, how does Jesus often come to us? Or come to those who are struggling or walking off. He comes through other people. He comes through his disciples. Jesus calls us, me and you, not just me, because there's one of me and there's a lot of you. Not just the priests, not just the nuns, all of us to draw near to those on the way. To draw near to the people who have left the church. To draw near to our children when they no longer practice. To draw near to others who are angry at the church. Who no longer believe in God. To meet them where they're at. Not to say, oh, Father's preaching a mission, y'all come. You can invite, that's great. But how are you going to invite them unless you meet them where they're at? To meet them where they're at and to speak to them to listen to them, to ask questions. That's so important. Particularly questions that probe the heart, to find out their story. During my 11 years at UL, one of the things that I guess just sort of like provoked the curiosity or the interest of people who weren't students more than anything else was a practice that I did called ask a priest a question. I like to pick a fight. But I also just like to talk to random people. So what I would do is I'd put a, a table in the middle of the intersection of the university and it said, ask a priest a question. And I'd just sit there for about three or four hours. <laughs> Some days nobody would come to me. Some days lots of people would come to me. You could ask me anything. One of the, some people ask me funny questions. Some people ask me dumb questions. But some people... Through that encounter that I was willing to go out to meet people, their lives were changed. One of them, I can tell you several stories, one of them was a young woman named Gabi Borlabe. I'm going to start crying because I love Gabi. I love, I love a lot of the people that I met. She was just this random student. 
And she was coming up, asking me questions. She was Catholic, but she didn't know anybody. She was from Guatemala. She, she, she had never really been around. She'd been around wisdom. And we started talking. I said, come in. She came in, and she became a super hit. Everybody loved her. She got involved in a Bible study. She had this massive conversion, and it was such a gift a few years later. I married her and her husband, and she just had her third kid, and this woman still meets every week with her group of Bible study friends, and they pray. It was because I was willing to go out. It was at UL or other college campuses that have, like, the focused missionaries, recent college grads who go out on college campuses. And they meet the kids where they're at. We're going to go hang out at the frat house. We're going to go say mass with the football team. We're going to go encounter the affinity groups and talk to them and invite them back. But before we invite them back, you got to ask them questions. Tell me about yourself. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me about your life. Get them to tell their stories. That's one thing I've learned. What is the number one thing people like to talk about? Themselves. If you ask about them, deep probing questions, real questions, they are going to respond. But we can't just ask questions. We have to actively listen. Listen to their stories. Let them tell their stories. And that's what Jesus does. He speaks to them. He allows them to tell their story. And to listen with great interest. And I really think this this practice of actively listening, or we call empathic listening, is something that we can all benefit from. Where we let people stop, those stories, we listen without trying to automatically formulate the next thing we're going to say. There have actually been a couple of good books recently that are about this. One is from David Brooks. Many of you may know who he is. He wrote a great book called How to Heal a Person. There's one coming out tomorrow from Charles Duhigg called Super Communicators, How to Unlock the Secret Language of Connection. There's a way to do this, and we can learn it, to ask the right questions, to connect to people, and not judging them, not saying things, I can't believe you would leave the church. I can't believe you'd believe that. Don't allow their story to shock you. Receive it. Thank you for sharing That must have really hurt. I can't believe you had to go through that. I'm really sorry that person hurt you. It makes a lot of sense that you would like to leave. Don't lecture them. And again, I don't mean to be lecturing y'all, but parents, do not lecture your children who have left the church. Guess what that will do? That will make them run to Emmaus. They will catch an Uber to get to Emmaus. Don't do it. They've left. They know you want them to come back. Meet them where they're at. Speak to them. Love them. Be present to them. Disciple them that way. Don't have an agenda, but still desire to bring them back and have great hope that the Lord is going to be the one that works to bring them back. He'll work through you. Particularly, y'all, this need to ask questions, to listen, to be present to, to walk with, are true for victims of sexual abuse, particularly in the church. I have worked with a lot of people, particularly women, victims of sexual trauma, some of them by priests and other members in the church. 
listen to their stories, believe their stories, cry with them, show your compassion. If you don't do it, it's not going to work. There's some horrible stuff out there. And people need you to be willing to listen to them, not defend the church, but just listen and say, yeah, that was wrong. That really hurt. How can I help you? So true. One of the stories that I like to tell, this is actually a student who I work with. She's not from UL. I've met her. She is now, I'll explain who she is. She's a young woman, an athlete. I met a few summers ago at a, a something called Summer Projects. Focus puts this thing on where you can get college students to go work at some resort around the nation, and they get to get some money, some lived experience, and uh, they get some fellowship and formation. And her name is Mariah. Call her Rye. Rye, when she was in college, quit practicing the faith. Just no sacraments. Walked away. And she'll say that she didn't really have any ownership of her faith. She got to college, and like so many college students, I don't care. But when I met Rye, Rye was angry. I was really, really angry at God and everybody else. And so I tried talking to her, but she didn't want to hear it. But I still prayed with her. I knew there was something special about this young woman. And what happened was, about two years later, I get a phone call from Father Kevin Dyer, who is the chief chaplain for Focus. He's a Jesuit priest, a great guy. And he says, guess who I'm talking to? I said, I have no idea. What, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm talking to Rye Godet. She's applying to be a Focus missionary. And she says that part of it is because of the conversation you had with her. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I was so angry at everybody, but she's here. I said, well, tell her to give me a call. She told me her story. That after some of her projects, she went back, and there were people from the, the, the college chaplaincy at the place she was at, or college, who knew she was struggling with her faith. People on her softball team who just loved her where she was at, who didn't like to her, who invited her to come to church, but just loved her. And gradually, she began to change. And now she's at a campus in the Northeast as a focused missionary ministering to people. And her life is completely different. I just talked to her today. I said, I'm going to embarrass you. Get ready. (laughs) This is what happens just from these simple encounters. And so that is the ultimate message for the first night. And we're going to truly disciple people. Yeah, you got to love them. Oh, yeah, you got to love them. We're going to talk about that. And you're going to have to learn to walk with them. But you got to meet them where they're fir- they are first and listen. Listen to their stories. But before we sort of wrap it up, I, I want to take a little detour. And this is something that kind of struck me a few months back as I was preparing a different retreat. And it's sort of studying the scripture. Now, this is going to seem like it has nothing to do with this, but trust me, it does. And it's become very relevant later on. So Jesus is ascent to Jerusalem, that journey of discipleship where he is with the disciples and they're following him to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 20. What happens right in the middle? 
What story? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because we'll be here all night. Luke chapter 15. It's my favorite parable. It's probably everybody's favorite parable. The parable of the prodigal son. Right there in the middle of the journey. I said, why is that there? Well, what do we see in the parable of the prodigal son, which we're going to probably revisit a couple of times over our mission, because it's Luke's gospel. It is in the middle of the journey to Jerusalem. And what do we see? We see the younger son leaving the father's house. I'm done with it. I'm out of here. I don't want this. You're a jerk. I am on the exodus, the exodus out from the father's house, rejecting his father, rejecting the family, into flight, into responsibility, irresponsibility, trying to anesthetize whatever pain, whatever restlessness he had. But there's a couple of things to notice. One of them is important. That the father does not go out after him. What's that was interesting? Because aren't we supposed to draw near? Isn't that what I've been talking about today? Why does the father let him go? Particularly also because this comes as the third parable under the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, both of which the individuals go to find them. But here, the most important parable, the father stays home. And the truth is, and this would be a whole different talk, I don't think it's that we, Jesus is trying to say that we don't go and search for people who are lost, but sometimes we got to let them go. Or even more, there's some people we don't need to chase after. Some people who are just going to reject the faith, and you got to let them figure it out on their own. But you don't abandon them, just like the Father, you're there, always on the lookout. The road back is there. And that's a hard thing to discern. But so often I see this, particularly with parents whose kids leave, we want to grasp and hold them there. You're not leaving the church. I'm going to put you in the dungeon. He's a 30-year-old man. Come on. Now, granted, Jesus lived at home when he was 30. Bring all of his friends over, hanging out. He's always on the lookout. So there's a key point there. So sometimes you got to let him go, and a lot of times we don't chase. It's hard, but we got to do it. But this is the key to understanding the prodigal son. And this is actually, as you're going to see this next point, the key to understanding almost everything we're talking about tonight. This is how I'm going to fulfill Father Cooper's desire for me to talk about the Eucharist. Why does Jesus tell the parable of the prodigal son? I'm going to go back to the beginning of John chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, and I'll give it to you right here. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. Actually, it's the same word they use later in Luke 24. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it's the same word. It's the Greek word enzingo. I think I'm pronouncing it right. They drew near to Christ just as Christ drew near to his disciples. So there's a, a way that Christ draws near to us and we can draw near to Jesus. 
But they ask him this thing is the complaint is you're eating with sinners. It's a question about food. Go back and read the prodigal son. There's a lot of food in it. Most of us never noticed it. When I first came to this about three years ago, my mind exploded. The parable is focused around eating. Hey, the younger son's home. Let's kill the fattened calf and have a big party. But the significance is the eating that goes on outside of the father's house. The younger son who leaves, and what does he do? He wants to eat the pig slop. The older son, well, I wanted that kid, that little goat, so I could party with my friends. But both of those eatings are happening outside of communion with the father. Outside of the embrace of the church. You can eat. But the eating that the Lord wants is that sacrifice of the fatted calf in the house. The Lord wants us receiving the Eucharist, communion with him in the church. So the parable of the prodigal son, just like the road to Emmaus, is the exodus from communion with the church, communion with the Father, abandonment of the Eucharist. So we're going to get back to that. We've got to come back to Jerusalem. We're going to talk about how the Lord does it. And so... So I sort of wrap up tonight. I think I did a decent time. I probably won't go for an hour. Maybe I will. We don't know. I haven't fully written the other talks yet. We'll see. <laughs> we're talking about discipleship, but we're talking about a real significant issue of people who are on the road to Emmaus and have left the church for so many reasons. How do we bring them back? How do we bring them back to the Eucharist? How do we bring them back to the church? And I can tell you, it is not going to be by programs. It's not going to be by our bureaucracies, whatever. It's going to be by personal encounter, one-on-one or maybe in small groups. It ain't going to be me preaching. Because the thing is, is the priests can preach all they want. The people who've left the church aren't here. If they left me preach at the evangelical church down the road, maybe they'd come back. I'd want a part of their collection, too. <laughs> but their pastor takes their W-2 and cuts 10% off the top. Imagine if the priest tried to do that over here, or any Catholic church. They'd be pinning him on the cross out there. <laughs> it's true. But I'm just telling you, this is how it works. Encountering, asking questions, and listening. Not judging, not exerting our own opinions, but listening. This is the first step. And the next step, on the hodos, on the way, we're going to see tomorrow. We're going to take that middle part where Jesus walks to Emmaus. Walks into the evening, walks into the darkness, and speaks to his disciples. So, that's what I got for tonight. I hope it's been informative, inspiring, at least maybe a bit entertaining. It's been good to see so many people. Please, it's like any kind of mission, invite others back. Maybe invite some of the people who've left. Say, hey, come back. Come listen to this priest talk. We won't bore you too much. <laughs> but hopefully I'll be praying for you that it's a good Lent. And again, we're talking about other people, but in our own lives. In our own lives. Do we find ourselves drifting? Do we find ourselves struggling with belief in the Eucharist, our own problems with the church? To be able to find some way to bring these to the Lord, to bring these to people we trust. Find that healing of our hearts 
so that we can live in Jerusalem, live in the Father's house. Amen.